All right, good morning, everyone. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. We'll have some of the scripture up here, but we're going to ask some questions in a moment back towards the scripture. So if you have a Bible, go there. If you just grabbed a new one, it's on page 1085. <laughs> so there you go. There's a good way to get there quickly. So, um, man, it's warm in here. It could have been cold. I was nervous it was going to be cold. Okay, all right. First Timothy chapter 4. We're just going to, I'm going to read the whole chapter <laughs> just because I think it's uh, pretty relevant for what we're talking about today. This is a letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, who was kind of his, his, his protege, his understudy young guy. It says, the spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teaching come through hypocritical liars who consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God in prayer. And if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed, and have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, and, but godliness has value of all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. That is why we labor and strive, because we've put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, and especially of those who believe. Now, command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. And until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching, and do not neglect your gift, which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters and give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress and watch your life and your doctrine closely and persevere in them. Because if you do you will save both yourself and your hearers. Let's pray. God, we're, we're always so thankful for your word, and, and we always pray that you would meet us in this space on, on a Sunday morning when we gather, that we know that you are the one that um, allows and creates and breathes life into your word, that it would move in, in, in each one of us and in our spaces. And so we're thankful that you, that you are here. We pray today that you would give us insight, that you would give us conviction, that you would lead us, that you would give us understanding, but may each person here just encounter you in one way or another. In Jesus' name, amen. The last several weeks, we have been going through our vision statements that we wrote at the beginning of the, of the life of ANC. We were just talking about the church we saw. We, we sat down when we first began dreaming and praying about who we wanted to be as a faith community and what we thought that could or should look like in, in and taking all of our background and different church experiences and coming together, what was it that we, that we dreamed of? What was it that we really, we envisioned, we prayed for, we hoped for? And one of the statements in our vision statements that we, say, that we have been going through, this is the, we save this one f- for the last as we start with Lent next week because it's so foundational, it's so critical and, and so important. And it simply says this, we see a church that equips believe, believers and values biblical teaching. 
We believe that the truth of Scripture is relevant and that it transcends time and culture. You know, it's interesting when you think about the Bible and you think about views on the Bible and values of the Bible and what different churches and denominations and what different believers believe about the Bible. It's, it's interesting to me how something that was designed to be so unifying is being used and has been used so much to divide. It's an incredibly polarizing conversation when we begin to talk about what is truth. Um, I think that we do this, each of us, uh, it, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally, but maybe directly or even indirectly, but we, we don't even realize where we begin to place those seeds of division or separation or whatever it may be, or even kind of a pecking order of what we believe over what someone else believes, because we say things like, well, we teach the Bible at our church, which implies what? That you don't at yours. But we have a high view of scripture, which implies what? That you have a low view. I think that it's really important that we take a day to really talk through what we believe about the Bible so that we can have this foundation, this reminder. It's actually one of the sermons we ask everyone to go through. If, if you decide to become a partner of ANC, we ask, there's a series of sermons on our, on our website called Knowing. It's what we did in our first year. Of in there, it goes through seven different sermons on is, issues and conversations about different doctrines and what we believe and why we believe it. And one of them is on is on the Bible. We think it's so important that we revisit this. That therefore, when we teach forward on other uh, topics, issues, different um, uh, different things that we face each day, we understand that the heart of our church, where it is, and where we stand when it comes to the Bible. And let there be no doubt. We want. All of us to understand, all of us to know as much as we can with our, you know, finite minds, as much as we can process and understand an infinite God, right? Also, so that we are equipped, so that we handle it well, so that we handle it well, first of all, before God, because it's so significantly important that we understand when we look into God's word and we respond to it in a certain way that there's something going on here first before it happens here. In fact, scripture, that's how it's supposed to work. That it doesn't happen out of me just doing something in an action or a response out of a sacrifice or, but instead that it happens as an overflow of what God is doing in us individually. Right, as we apply, so that for before God, that we uh, can look at His Word and maybe have the right posture. That's a word we use a lot around here, so that we don't come before God with arrogance or with the idea that we already know everything there is to know about everything that He's written or dreamed of, but also before other people. Um. It's so striking, the arrogance and the pride that can sometimes and often surround biblical insight or supposed biblical insight. So our desire, probably as much as anything, as we consider God's word, the Bible, um, is for us to handle it well and, and to be a light and that people would be drawn to the truths that we believe or that we speak or that we would try 
the best we can to think about how we are representing him. But this is scary, and it's very understandable. I mean, thinking about the very first verse, Tim, uh, Paul writes to Timothy, the Spirit clearly says in later times, some will abandon the faith, and that's the fear. So many times when we look at Scripture, our, 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 our fear is that, well, if this is a shift or something changes or, or something maybe I haven't thought of before, that am I abandoning the faith? I mean, this talks very clearly about this. And so we move into fear and we begin to be polarizing and, and, we, and we move out of and we act out of being afraid. But in this context, 1 Timothy 4, this letter to Paul, what is the faith, the letter to Timothy, what is the faith that Timothy is talking about? Does anyone know? Is he talking about Judaism in its earliest form? Is he talking about the law? In its earliest form, is he talking about the traditional way of living out faith um, that we see in the Old Testament? Is he? Is it that rhetorical? No, he's, thank you. He's writing about the way. He's writing about this new faith that they discovered and they found in Christ. This new way, this new, this new life, this To be clear, and I'll just give you the answer on where we are as a church. To be clear, we fully trust the Bible as our compass at ANC. I, I would argue that it is the, it is, it is for us. It is everything that points us to everything. It is the center of um, our searching uh, for truth. But we also recognize that the Bible says that the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. So somehow we have to recognize that and reconcile that with who we are versus who we are not and approaching God's word in the right way. We talk about this often. Are we approaching God's word to define or defend what we believe or how we live or how we want to handle something? And that can be really hard to do. It can be really hard to do. So we've always prayed and hoped that ANC could be a space where we could sit back and where questions are welcomed. Where we could sit back and we could really say, well, what does Scripture truly say about this and why? And so we want to talk about this morning a little bit about the Bible. And I, I would like to do this in, in, four, in, in four sections. The first one is, is what we know about the Bible. Truly what we know about the Bible, and it can kind of feel like a workshop kind of information. And there's some, if you look inside your bulletins, there's actually an outline today. And I would just want to make sure, how many of you guys, if you have an outline, you have to have every blank filled in, for sure. Anybody? I see you. I see you. My goal is to have every, every blank filled in, okay? But I also wanted to give you something to take with you so you could think through. And even in, get online and, and do some research and do some study or, or whatever. But first, we want to start with what we know about the Bible, we want to talk then as a, as a church what we believe about the Bible, what we are learning about the Bible, and what we tend to miss about the Bible. So let's start with what we know about the Bible. And, and if you look inside, there's an outline, but there's also a little handout. It's got a little chart on the back. We're not going to go through all of this, but let me give you a summary of what this is talking about. What we know about the Bible, it, it's really interesting to me. I remember when I was a junior in high school and I was taking world history and I had this huge world history textbook, and we got to a page where it talked about this guy named Jesus from Nazareth. 
And even though I had grown up in the church, it was that moment when it really struck me that this was a historical figure, a man who actually walked on this earth. Like it wasn't debated. His existence was not debated. Whether you believed who he was or not, his existence was not debated. And there are so many things about God's word, about the Bible, that is not debated. It's like actual fact, right? Actual things that we have known and we have learned. And so these are some of the things that we know about the Bible. First of all, when you go, when you look at the books of antiquity, the historical ancient writings in which uh, our society bases so much of our historical background on, in order to look into those writings, and I'm talking about non outside of, outside of the Bible, some of them are listed on this chart. One of the things, there's a handful of things you do in order to rate its credibility or its reliability. There are standards in which are universally accepted in which we have to first start looking at those writings. The first one is to look at the original manuscripts and to figure out how long from the original time this was written as an account of something that happened from the point in which it happened. And then you look at the first copies and you look at the amount of time, the amount of years it took between the first one written and then when someone translated or copied that, how many years away that went. Because if it happened in a generation, then you're having firsthand stories being told back and forth. If it's generation, multiple hundreds of years, then, I mean, that could be translated differently, right? And so the smaller gap there, the more credible it is, or how long it was before the first earliest translation, and then how many of them of the earliest translations still exist. And the reason for that then is you can identify what they call variable readings. And the variable readings are, say there is a verse in which one part of it does not, is not identical with the other ones, right? And so you measure how many of those are there in a text. So that's the actual text. From there, you have history and time. You have archaeology that comes in and proves different things happened or different people ruled during this time period, which then co- collaborates and corroborates with the information that was written, right? You find a scroll that was written about a certain person who led and did, did a certain thing in this time period, and it matches up exactly with or some piece of art or some jewelry or whatever that might represent that validates exactly what happened. So you have archaeology, and then you have the script, the, uh, uh, the, the script that survives throughout without being changed, especially in uh, spiritual or religious writings. There are some religious writings that exist in the world that over the years in our last century has been changed, has been rewritten in many different uh, religious texts. If you go back, the survival of, of that, of being unchanged or changed. If you look up the information, and it's, one of them is on, and some of this is on, on this chart, but there's a lot of information online. Simply put of this, of all the books of antiquity, it's undisputed, the Bible's reliability is unparalleled. Not one single book of antiquity even comes close Hundreds of years separate their translations. Thousands more of the manuscript, of the, of the, of the, of the copies that existed, the original copies. Um, the collaboration and the corroboration of all of these different kinds of authors coming from different backgrounds pointing towards one central theme. The fact that archaeology has never proven one thing wrong. It's only proven possible or true. This is all from a book that is the most criticized, 
book in the history of the world. People have been out there trying to disprove it and discredit it forever, and it just has not been so. Now, I will say this. There are some that if you look at some scriptures, you may look at that and go, well, this seems to counter this. This, I would argue, and I think by the end of our time today, we will have a basis for arguing. Many times that is not, or I would argue every time, that is not a direct uh, countering or saying a different thing, directly uh, opposing that, but instead it's a different, it's a, quite possibly a misinterpretation or intended for a different purpose in a different culture for a different time, okay? Even under a different covenant, right? And so, first of all, more than anything, I want you to hear this, and, and I would encourage, there's an old book that's been around for a long time called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It's a great book. And it goes through all of this stuff. Go, go read it. If you have a question about the, God's, the, the Bible, and it is miraculous how it has, it's still here today in its form, in this original same form. It's nothing short of miraculous. So in your brain, as just a person who thinks, it is not ridiculous. In fact, it's it is proven over and over as the most accurate historical book ever written. Just know that. That's a good starting point, isn't it? Why should we listen to this? Well, first of all, it's the most accurate historical book ever written. Okay, well, let's start there. Okay. So you can look at this a little bit later. Go ahead and pull out then the outline that we have. All right. Let's get into what we believe. What we believe, number one, this is on your outline, we believe the Bible is God-inspired. I don't believe it's just a book written. We don't believe it's a book written by a bunch of different dudes who just came together and wrote something, and oh, it just happened to fit together. Um, we think God was 100% behind it. Second Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is God-breathed. Just the, the next letter Paul wrote to Timothy, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That phrase, that word God breathed, God inspired, is only used one other time in the Bible. And it's used in the Hebrew when God created the earth. I believe with all my heart that the same power and the same authority in which God breathed into the existence, the creation of the earth was used in creating his word. Let there be no doubt it is God-inspired. Oh, not only that, I, I, I was wrong. It's used twice. No, only once in the New Testament, twice in the Old Testament. When God breathed, uh, when God inspired the creation of the earth and when God breathed life into man. That's pretty cool if you think about it. There's a lot of words in the Bible that mean a lot of things. And for one word to be used in those three things... I think it's special. I think it's special and it's something that we should deeply press into. The second one is that we believe that the Bible is living and active. And we'll, we'll answer part of this, how that makes sense now, and we'll get into some more in a moment. Um, when I think about why I believe what I do and how we trust in God's word, for me, at first it inspires with the evidence that we talked about. That I didn't always have, but that, when that came back to me and I first read that or saw that probably 20 years ago, I was like, it blew me away. It was so validating for me. That was where it really began to take root for me. But then it moves on when we begin to see the evidence lived out. 
So when we say we believe the Bible is living and active, what is that? What do you think that means? Or what can that mean to you? Any thoughts on that? Okay, so it's, it, it is, act, who said that? Okay. It's actively moving and it works in us. It changes us, right? Hebrews 4.12 says this. It says, the word of God is alive and it's active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. I think it's really interesting. You know, we, we are all born, we have experiences in life and we're born into certain traditions, right? Um, some of us were born um, in the church. Literally, you know, Jen talks about going to church three times a week or four times a week as a fetus. Um, some of us grew up in that environment. Some of us did not. Some of us grew up in different faith traditions and different environments. Some of us in absolutely zero faith tradition maybe came to faith later. Maybe some of you are searching right now. But we all have different backgrounds and traditions that we were raised in and that we experienced. And I would argue as we consider how God's word is living and active that the truth itself is unchanging but our understanding of that truth matures. That it's alive and that it's maturing and that it's growing and it's taking root in us. There are certain things we can understand in certain ways when we are in certain places in life. And it's amazing how God's word can say, the same thing can be read, dropped into this room, and I promise you it would say 50 different things to 50 different people in this room. And it will hit you today differently than it will in 10 years hearing the same word. That it is alive and that it is active. You know, it's amazing. When I graduated from Bible college, how much I knew about the Bible. I think I know less now. But I think it's changing me more now. I think it's more active now, which is crazy. Here's what I'm saying. The Bible is not limited by our understanding. Let that sink in for a moment. We believe the Bible is God-inspired. We believe the Bible is living and active So we begin to see the evidence that is there, that is fact, begins to live out. And then we begin next to see the bigger picture. Number three, we believe the Bible is remaining and continuing. It's remaining, it's enduring, it's here, and it's continuing. 1 Peter 1.23 says, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed. So it's not dead, it's alive, through the living and enduring word of God. How is this different? How is remaining and continuing a little bit different than living? The last one was the Bible's living and active. How is that different than remaining and continuing? Does that strike up anything in in your brain? Okay, that it endures. That it's there, that it's remaining, that it's a constant, not just living and active, but it's constantly living and active. You see, we live in, I don't want to get ahead of myself. We live in, I'm going to, we live in an age of grace. Like this story is not over. You understand that? Like we live in an age of grace after the cross, before his second return. We live, there will be a day when we live before and we stand before God and we worship no longer in faith, we worship in knowing. 
right? And so in this time, there is continuing revelation happening in your lives personally, and I think in the church. I believe the church is maturing. A lot of people believe the church goes through cycles. Oh, we've seen this before. We've seen this before. But I really believe, as you look at the very first generation of the church, that it's maturing. And the church is going through different... I don't know whether we're in our 20s right now and we know everything, or if we're in our 30s again and we're questioning everything, or we're in our 40s again and we want to live with purpose now, or whatever it is. But it's happening. Because today, in my life... I think the church is asking questions today like it never dreamed of 20 years ago. And I think it's good because I think we're listening to the movement of the Spirit and I think we're loving people better. Okay? Stop crying. (laughs) There is this redemptive arc through all Scripture about... um, I don't know, three years ago, we did a thing called the story of God. And it was weird because we told the whole Bible in 12 weeks through story form. And you would go, oh, that sounds really interesting. Well, it was kind of, it got a little boring. (laughs) Um, um, But the one thing we did that was really, I thought was strong was to remember that this whole redemptive arc, the story of the Bible starts in Genesis and it ends in Revelation. And there's this whole story of God redeeming and restoring and bringing freedom and life and hope to everyone. It first started for the Jew, and then to the Gentile, and then it went to the slave, and then beyond and beyond. It's this whole trajectory of the gospel, of this whole story is redemption of all God's creation. So when we just grab God's word and just go, ooh, this little piece right here, let's just make this the biggest, most important thing in the church today. That's not faithfully looking at God's word. We have to look at it in this bigger picture of what God is doing through this, through Jesus. Okay, so what we believe, let's move into what we are learning. Did you get all the, uh, did I get all the blanks? Okay, flip your card. I heard this once about a theologian said, I love to talk about the scriptures. When I must, I'll talk about why we believe they are true, but I'd rather talk about what they mean. I like that. But it's so interesting. Some people argue that there are over 33,000 denominations in the world. Now, if you were to really split that up, it's a little bit different because there are like denominations within being independent, within being Protestant, um, Orthodox, Catholic, Anglican. There are different, but there are, there are literally tens of thousands of different sects of, of religion in the world today that claim the Bible to be their center and yet it's so different now there's a difference we need to we need to remember there's a difference between a preference and style of worship right and actually what we believe there was a day i'm telling you there was a day in the baptist church i grew up with if there was a drum set on on stage you were liberal you're you were liberal about the bible the whole thing because of a drum set and, and so when, when we started realizing that, you know, all the other happening churches are getting drum sets, we got electric drum sets. So you can tr- control the volume, with like, you know, and it's just amazing how that has. So there's a preference. And I remember, I think it was Andy Stanley said one day, he says something to the effect of that it's a, it's a major mistake when we think methodology equals theology, but sometimes we take the way a practice someone wants to do something, we automatically make an assumption about their value of God's word. I would argue most of the time it's just interpretation. 
that someone could value it just as much, but just interpret it differently. Maybe it is out of ignorance. Maybe they're wrong. Maybe you're wrong. <laughs> um, but I think many a times the differences are mostly driven by, by interpretation that are informed many times by our tradition. There is a thing, man, uh, unconscious bias, man, it's tough. There, I mean, it's a proven thing that if you believe a certain thing and you hear evidence that could even counter it, that you are almost incapable of seeing that evidence without seeing it as defending your point instead of countering it. It's so difficult to do that. Like psychology, our traditions, what we grow up in, our education then, which reinforces many times that traditions, the culture in which we are in, the circle of which we, though we are influenced, and our desire to belong, to adopt other people's beliefs because we just don't want to be rejected. But we're still learning because there's also some things like science, which helps us learn some things. It helps us understand fact. Like there was a day when it was fact, the world was flat, was it not? But then you learn, no, it's not. Right? So that's not a departure from truth. It's new insight. It's growth. It's moving forward. When you learn from history... You know, um, it's no surprise. We've been talking about a handful of different social. We've had many social conversations in our day, in our church very specifically, especially as we've been talking about the LGBTQ conversation. Man, when you consider what we know about science today, if you haven't done the research, you need to, some research on it to understand. There was a day when I just did not understand the science behind gender identity. I still don't understand it all. But I will tell you this right now. We know a lot more today than we did 50 years ago. And science and history and insight and fact has to inform how we then apply and interpret God's word. We can't assume that everyone knew in applying in this culture what things meant in certain times. An oversimplified interpretation of scripture is what leads to justifying slavery and oppression of women, which have been things that have been used by Christians for ages, used the Bible to justify. Thank God that he has moved in our culture to help us understand better. Let's not be found guilty of never, let's not be found guilty of not being willing to learn. And regardless of where you land on certain topics, it should inform how you then live it out. It should inform uh, how we apply it then to how we live in biblical community when we consider who Christ is and this overall redemptive arc that the Bible represents. So my point there, what are we learning? Here's what we're learning. We're just still learning. What we're learning is that the Bible is complex. If I ever find myself just saying, you know what, the Bible is clear on that. I, right now, that's my new red flag. Really, the things I've found that the Bible is clear on, clear on is that God is love and that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. That was clear. No one comes to the Father except by me, is what Jesus said. 
So how do we know that we're interpreting Scripture responsibly? I, I want to give this to you. Jen has been teaching on, on this, walking through with the women's Bible study on, on Monday nights. But um, we're going to do a little bit more of this. We're going to have some more conversations when the women's study is over. We're going we're gonna to break into scripturally um, what the Bible is saying about a lot of rel- very important, relevant things right now in our culture, and it is defining who we are as a, as a faith community. But here's a few things that I want to share with you. As we, as we interpret Scripture responsibly, here's these next blanks. We'll move through these pretty quickly. I, I filled in most of the information so that you can revisit it. There are several things outside of the, the text itself. The first thing is we have to first consider, consider first the context of the writing. Historical, cultural, literal context. The time it was written, the relevance, the history of what was going on in the church then or Judaism at that time, or Christianity, etc. We have to take a moment. You can't just take a scripture, read it plain, and just apply it to where we are today. We have to consider the culture, what was being said at that time, cultural implications, the traditions. What was a common understanding during that time? What was happening in the church in Corinth? What was happening in Greece during the time of the church in Corinth? Because it was a mess, and idolatry was crazy, and sexual immorality as part of the temple worship was just culturally, it was at the center of everything. So that changes how you begin to look at some scripture. Consider the context of the writing. Literal, the literal context. The Bible was not all written just by God as a journal. He inspired it. It's history, it's law, it's poetry, it's song, it's parable, it's letters written. Written by someone, to someone, and for a specific reason. Paul was addressing issues in churches, and he was leading them forward. It's very important that when we interpret in context that we take a truth, we find out what was the, we read something, we find out what was the truth in that moment, pull the truth out and apply it to our context, not the culture to our context. First, consider first the context of the writing. Second, consider Christ and the gospel as the central interpretive lens. Christ and the gospel is the central interpretive lens. Here's what I mean by that. I have a friend, he's very, 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 I don't agree with all the things he says. This one thing, it was, it was strong. He said, he's a preacher, he's a teacher, and he says, if you preach a sermon and it would be exactly the same truth with or without the cross, you are not teaching it through a gospel-centered or a Christ-centered lens. Does that make sense? Like the, the cross has to change something. It has to change the reason in which it was said because we know that's the trajectory in which things are being written. So it has to inform and have to change something. Now, here's where the method and the message thing, we need to make sure we're not confusing um, the way in which we do something and automatically connecting with our theology because the gospel, if you want to know if something is truly gospel-centered, then it should apply in any culture. I think the gospel, the true gospel, the principles of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ transcends culture. All right? The third one, we have to consider what other scripture says. What other scripture says. 
if there's one thing that says this in this context, but it's a specific, maybe it's about how women are supposed to behave, but it's in a patriarchal context, right? But then you have 2,000 other verses that talk about how not to do that, all right? We have to read that in context with what other, what other scripture is saying. Here's, here's an, another example. Jesus is often referencing um, the Old Testament, right? Um, one place he says it, Matthew 9, 13, he says something to the effect of, go and, and um, learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, right? Well, he is referencing Hosea chapter 6, in which the scripture is, literally says this, um, where it's talking about, uh, it says, come and return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces. In two days, he will revive. In three days, he will restore us that we may live, uh, that we may, uh, live in, his, in his presence. And it goes on to talking about learning and loving mercy. Well, in this moment, Jesus is teaching about loving mercy, but now we know that what Hosea is, is it's prophetic, Right? We know that what happened in the future with other scripture is that when it says, let us return to the Lord, he has torn us to pieces. In two days, he will revive us. In three days, he will restore us. He's talking about the cross and the resurrection. But we didn't know that until it was lived out and we consider other scripture, okay? Considering other scripture, what it says. When the Bible talks about drinking wine and it talks about eating meat sacrifice to idols and other things that are considered stumbling blocks, okay? It goes on. Paul continues on to teach about freedom in Christ and that there, is, there's, there are many things that are left up to us at the individual before God to be able to then apply that in our lives. And it's not one thing fits all on some of those. There's a point where he says if something's not done in faith, it's a sin for all of us, right? But if we have the freedom, don't let our freedom allow someone else to stumble, for them, if that's a sin, then it's a sin. So it's, it's complicated, but we have to apply other scripture to come to a full understanding of that truth. The next thing is we have to consider God's overall intent or purpose. Let me back up to the scripture part. There's two other things I think are really important to think about that, and I wrote it there. Description or prescription. Is the Bible, we have to ask the question, is the Bible through other scripture, do we know that the Bible is saying this is describing something that's happening? Or is the, the Bible prescribing saying this is how it's supposed to be. There are many things written in Scripture in the Old Testament that was God's created order, that he created it to be a certain way, but it didn't stay that way. The, the Old and New Covenant is evidences of that. When we think about marriage, talked about Solomon having how many wives? 700 wives, 300 concubines. Was that a prescription? <laughs> or a description? Right, you know what I'm saying? Um, and later it talks about him being the wisest man that ever lived. <laughs> Sounds like a terrible idea to me. <laughs> and we know that it is. Consider God's overall intent and purpose. That was the next one. And uh, there's this, uh, there's, this um, there's a thing called legislative intent. When a law is being passed or a bill has been written, many times there is, it is written in a way in which there is a heart, there's a heart of, the, of, that, of that law or that bill, but it's written in all of these ways that point towards all these things have to happen in order for this thing to happen. And so many times, if we just jump back here and look and picked apart that individual thing, we'd never get on the same page, we'd never get there. 
right? There is a legislative intent, I believe, in which God has written where there is a heart behind where he's going. There is a design and there is a desire. I think there is a, an intent and a purpose. There is, uh, 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 Although he knows he's God, there is a hope. There is an intended purpose of what's happening. And it's not always Article 1, Section A of the bill, which is what the focus of the bigger picture, the heart of what's, of what's happening. Consider the fruit. All right, all your blanks are filled, right? Yes, they are. Oh, did I say that? Consider the fruit? Did I mean to say it? Let's say that, consider the fruit. Last one, you have to consider the fruit. This is what we forget to do all the time. Although my next section is called what we forget to do. John 5, Jesus says, the very works that I am doing testify that the Father sent me. Um, sometimes just back up and go, is this bad? Is my attitude here hurting people? Is what I believe and I'm teaching, is it creating, is there any love? In, is there any joy? Is there any restoration? Is this moving people towards the kingdom or is this dividing? Is this splitting my church? Is this splitting my family, my friendships? It, it's really interesting. There's categories in, in the Bible all over. It talks about malicious, they're murderers and deceitful and mean and this and that and all of those things. It's insane. In fact, in 1 Timothy 4, the scripture we read at the very beginning, it talked about the people who were, who were leading astray from the way, from the, the, the faith that they, were, that they were teaching in Christ. They were saying that their conscience was seared, that they denied people to enjoy good. There's some evidence in the fruit sometimes. We just got to back up. When we, you just don't know, you just kind of back up and go, what is this doing? Is this good news? We sometimes just back up and go, is this, the gospel means good news. Is this good news? Is this good news to this person, or is this, this, we need to measure the fruit. What we tend to miss, I think this is huge. Um, three quick thoughts, and then we'll move into a time of just communion and prayer, worship together. The first one is, is this, that we need to hear beyond anything. I wanted to start with this, but I want to, instead I want to close with it. The Bible reveals the need and hope for Jesus, for Jesus. The end goal is not the Bible. The end goal is Jesus. The Bible is our compass. Our true north is Jesus. Okay? What does Jesus really say? What do we know about Jesus? How would he respond? How would he apply? We need to take care in not worshiping scripture as Jesus. Jesus himself said, you seek the scriptures hoping to find the truth, but these are the same words that testify about me. And they missed him. You refuse to come to me to have life. The second one is that the Bible reveals the story of redemption. We talked about that with the whole redemptive arc. Don't miss the forest through the trees. Sometimes we narrow down so much we miss the forest through the trees. And you know who did that? Pharisees, the teachers of the law. 
This is what Jesus kept trying to derail him from. And it's interesting to me, this is our bent. It's to go back, to return to that. It's our safety net. And we have to be careful that the Bible story of redemption is towards freedom and love, not division and anger and jealousy. The scope of the whole is the glory of God, from creation to restoration, freedom, physically, emotionally, spiritually. John 8, 32, Jesus said, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Freedom. Last one, the Bible invites us into the greater story. You know, there's so much about our faith that is to be lived out, right? A beautiful thing is, is that it starts with us, with you. God wants to do in you. You, very specifically. Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and life to the full. His desire is for you to live the fullest life beyond your greatest dream, beyond your greatest understanding. This greater story. Either we will find ourselves in his greater story or we will find ourselves in a lesser story. And that we are invited into this story is the most beautiful part. My favorite verse in the Bible, Jesus just says, go and learn what, it mean, learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And then he invites us through his word to his table. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. The word was God. This word is Jesus. That's how it's living. That's how it's continuing. That's how it's alive. We don't just know this word. This word knows you. Knows your struggle, your pain. He knows your doubts. And his answer to you is come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. Let's pray.